Well-written fiction can have the potency to examine the conundrum of humanity, of conflicting ideas, which happen on the levels of the personal in relationships, the personal in culture, culture in judgment and status. And good fiction invites us to be less alone, to question our own thoughts and perceptions and laugh at ourselves and cry about what hurts. I am Suzanne Lang, bringing you a novel idea. Today we visit with two authors whose narrative prose captivates with story and may cause you to reflect a bit on just who we are as people living amongst other people. A little later in the show, we'll talk with Beth Kirshner, whose novel Copper Divide is set in the mining country of Upper Michigan during the contentious labor struggles of 1913. If you know the Woody Guthrie song of the 1913 massacre in Calumet, Michigan, it will resonate as you read this book. In just a minute, we'll talk with Daniel Koshner, whose latest book of short stories is Separation Anxiety. Dan's work has always touched me with his heartfelt renderings, social consciousness, astute observations of human behavior, and his humor. Let's listen to him read one of his stories from the book, Separation Anxiety. Brooklyn-bound Q. She enters, takes a seat on the crowded bench opposite him, meets his gaze distractedly, and then peers into her handbag. He looks down and then across the car to the left and the right of her. He lets his eyes roam and return to settle upon her glossy paperback. Is he brave enough to read the title? Sure he is. He's interested in the book and books in what people are reading, not in her. She adjusts her glasses, scans the car quickly for another open seat as if to say, I don't want your attention. He averts his eyes as if to say, don't flatter yourself. Now he's interested in footwear. He smiles approvingly at the feet of an old man in purple high top sneakers as if to say, I have many interests. I value novelty, surprise, risk. She is amused by her book, lets out a sigh and briefly smiles as if to say, I don't even know you're here. The train stops. Two men in suits depart and two teens, a girl and a boy with backpacks and hoodies and baggy black denims, shuffle into the space between him and her and take hold of the overhead railings. The teens commence a conversation. I read it, the boy says. All right, who Nick? He the one that's telling the story. Who Daisy then, she says. She the white chick that the other one is all hot for. All right. Who the other one and where he from? He looks up. She looks up. She smiles briefly as if to say, I remember that book. Or I remember high school. Or doesn't this seem ironic, these kids in this time, speaking in those terms about that time? He smiles too as if to say, isn't the subway a magnificent experience? Or isn't it better when we don't hide from one another? As if to say, you and I, we are of the same background, the same class. We understand each other. The boy answers, his name Jay, like my man, Jay-Z. You don't know nothing, the girl says. He grins, she grins. The train stops and the teens depart. Her eyes revisit her book, dart back to him and back again to the pages in front of her. He permits his smile to linger and allows his gaze to settle on her in an unfocused way, as if to say, I'm at ease, I'm pleased, you're safe, I'm interested. She brushes her bangs with the back of her wrist as if to say, 
I know you're watching, as if to say, I'm not uncomfortable, as if to say, I don't know what to say. She closes her paperback and with unusual care, she puts it back into her handbag. She is saying that her stop is next. He bends to pull up his socks as if to say, I didn't mean to embarrass you or now you can look at me or this is my stop too, maybe. She stands, turns to face the front of the train, turns her hips toward him and pulls down the hem of her skirt. She looks down and up and back to the bench where she had been sitting. Then she finally risks a glance in his direction as if to say, are you going to follow me, you creep? Or it's now or never, or simply goodbye. He sets his hands on the bench beside him as if to steady himself for when the train slows down, or perhaps to say, I'm getting up, give me a sign. His face pleads, his eyes implore, eight and a half million people here and I won't likely see you again. I'm not a creep, but the train comes to a full stop. People exit, people enter. A crackling sound comes and then a weary voice fills the car. Next stop is Times Square. This is a Q train bound for Brooklyn. Change here for the NRS 1, 2, 3, and 7 trains. Stand clear of the closing doors, as if to say, stand clear, the doors are closing. That was our first guest, Daniel Koshner, reading Brooklyn Bound Q from his book of stories, Separation Anxiety, a collection of 18 stories. His previous work includes occupation and other love stories, jobs and other preoccupations, and homesick redux. Dan lives in Guerneville, California, and has supported many other writers through his classes he teaches in the Bay Area. Dan also works at a group home for the homeless and mentally ill. Let's listen to our conversation. Daniel Koshner, welcome to talk about your book of short stories, Separation Anxiety. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. The short story or the short form, I think one of your books might be a novella. It seems like it's your form. And I'd like to talk a little bit about that, your approach to writing short stories, short pieces, and what that form offers you as a writer and us as readers. Sure. I think I come to the short story in part because I'm a very slow reader. And I look at a tome someone's carrying around by Stephen King, and I think it would take me all year to get through it. Uh, So I I like the short form. I I feel like I can get through them and I, I enjoy them. But having read a lot of them, I, I often wonder about how they work. What are, what are the rules of a short story? What are the guidelines? And they fascinate me. So it seems within the short story, you can try on a voice that maybe you couldn't sustain for a long distance, or you can try on a structure that might become wearisome to the reader or to the writer over a long haul. But in the short, in the short span, interesting things can happen. And sometimes the, the unusualness of the voice or the structure gives form to the story, just in the way it comes out or the way that voices play off each other, um, gives a shape and a limit. And, and I find those limits nice to work with. It seems like none of your stories are what I would call formulaic or the form changes from each story. So each story is taken on its own. And for a reader of a collection of these, we have to be on our toes a little bit to be pulled into maybe a different rhythm or, or a different voice. 
And I can't help but to think that that's part of your joy about the writing process. And in one of your stories, um, Ordinary Love Story, one of your characters says, the story makes its own demands. And I just imagine that that's how you write, but also you teach writing. And I wonder if that's something that you encourage in your students as well. Yeah, thank you for that observation. I think that that is true. And I, you know, when I look at my collection, this one and other ones that I worry, you know, if someone picks up a book and wants to find a commonality of voice or structure or even theme, the theme maybe is there, but the other parts may not be uh, in the way that you might expect. In terms of the teaching, I think I have tried for years to come up with some simpler formula for understanding what makes a story work, but it defies me over and over and over. And in a way, that's part of the wonder of the form, I think. It's a place where people, writers go to experiment, to break rules or to upset conventions. And so almost as soon as I become aware or think I am aware of, of some convention, something that is inherently necessary to make a story, I want to break that rule. I want, <laughs> I want to defy it in some way. So that's part of the pleasure of form, I think. And is it something you have a initial awareness of? Or say if you're jumping around in time or you have a future or you know a future voice of a character coming in or something like that does that kind of organically arise for you or do you think this is going to work better if I do a back and forth kind of thing in time or something like that I'm just curious about because the stories are they do have your kind of unique way of articulating a story and, and characters and the type of characters you approach. But it's that kind of formal difference that from story to story that I found fascinating. I can't say it arises organically. None of these certainly are first draft. Uh, they, they've gone through a number of changes. So often I think the stories emerge out of a conversation, either a real conversation that I'm having with someone or, uh, or a conversation that I imagine having with someone. And there get to be a, one or two or more voices at work. And then how they'll begin to play off each other in time and in relation uh, evolves through the writing of the piece. But again, they, they aren't quite different. Some are, some are imitative of other kinds of forms, I think. And, and, and that can be fun, too, to try to tell a story that doesn't look like a story. I'm trying to think of an example now from this collection. It's, I'm not sure. Oh, the, the first one, Hicksley Elizabeth at Hotmail.com. The voice there, I've never really been able to identify exactly what it is. It's it's someone who is uh, able to read this person's emails and follow their bank transactions and perhaps other things that are, are revealing, but they, this the voice is never revealed. It's a sort of a, a, a spooky we <laughs> that's following. And I, I've thought about, well, there are these. But we, we probably all have relations with entities that, we don't know, but they know us. And, and so that, that was sort of the emergence of that story, just for one. Uh, it was kind of fun to play with this, this we voice, which is a, a, kind of a little bit of an unusual point of view. And that is an example of it, and that there's something that I would call dangerous in your writing. Uh, for me as a reader, and maybe for you as a writer, there's there's a real frankness and, and fearlessness to talk about things 
And I guess I'm wondering about that chemistry and if you yourself perceive your work as a, a little bit risky. Risky to me in the sense that I, I start things and I don't finish. I don't know where they're going. And I rarely do. Um, then there often comes a risk when I pick up something that I've started and I try to blend it with something else that I've started. And, and where can I find some overlap? Where can I find some discovery? So, so there's an element of risk in that part for sure. Uh, in terms of the themes of the stories, I, I suppose there is a bit of emotional risk. Um, characters go through some some hard things. I I, um, I think back to, I, I took classes with Molly Giles and she had a wonderful quote back down at San Francisco State. She said, uh, what is a short story? You take a character, you dress them up a little bit, you drag them through the mud, and then maybe at the end you clean them a little bit more. And uh, that that stands out for me. I had an experience first teaching at, at San Francisco State when I when I was still in the writing program, working with undergraduate students, uh, and they were all over the map. There was some very good writing and some other writing that seemed uninspired. But one thing that I noticed is, is a number of students were trying to write these characters who you might describe as universal. They didn't always have names. They had genders, usually. Uh, they didn't necessarily have jobs or families or backgrounds. Uh, a lot of things happened in bedrooms. There was sometimes some uh, violence. It, it seemed like we were clicking around on TV in a way, uh, going for high, high dramatic moments without development of character. And shortly after that experience, I worked for Parks and Rec at the Finley Center and I worked with some much older writers who were coming at it, not for grades, but because they were interested, but they didn't have much experience. And when they wrote their characters, it was, seemed quite clear that characters were themselves and they were deeply invested in who these characters were. And it seemed to me that one has to find a balance there. You have to write about people you can know and care about and also be willing to drag them through the mud a little bit. And then, so it seemed both sides of the spectrum. And, and I think there's a risk that comes in because as you take the time to get to know the characters or they remind you of people in your own life, uh, you don't want them to suffer too much. <laughs> but it's it's in the suffering, I think, that that readers really are able to connect. It's it's part the part of the experience that that we can all know and we all will know eventually. And there is something awkward in your characters, but it's it's the awkwardness of life. You know, should I talk to that person in front of me in line? Or is that my former high school teacher sitting at the end of the bar? Or, uh, these characters are often in the midst of a destabilizing event um, that, in, that involves loss. And that is the most common, unavoidable thing we experience in life. But you often do, as you say, wipe a little bit of the mud off their face um, um, by the end of the story. And even in some of the difficult stories, there's a, a sweetness that um, you can't help but to love these characters. So I, I wonder if you could talk about what I'm calling the awkwardness of your characters uh, who are just trying to get through life as we are. Yeah. They may be so close to home that I don't always see that, right? I, I think 
let, let me see if I can choose one as an example. Well, an ordinary love story. And that was, uh, I thought that was a lovely story, ordinary love story. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, in that one, you have, you have a character who's suffering from addiction, but also anger, a uh, sense of loss of place in the world. He's, he's coming to terms with the messages he got, particularly from his father, but his father and mother. And, and he's not doing a very good job uh, as a family member, as a husband. And then you have the wife who's trying to come to terms with what he's done and also what her life is about, what it means. So they're both, I guess, in the midst of some, I guess I would call a kind of crisis and trying to find something to hold on to, something of, of meaning and value. And, and that, for me, is often, I guess, gets close to the center of a story. You put a character in, in the midst of crisis, because I think by the nature of, of how stories work, we need that slice of time in someone's life uh, where something meaningful happens, something can be decided. There can be some sense of resolution. Resolution, I, I often say in my classes, is, is by no means solution. It's not a, a solution to the problem. But it's the end of something. Something is settled, and uh, in order in order to get there, you, I think you have to discover a kind of crisis for a character. They have to be in the middle of going one direction or another direction. Uh, Frank O'Connor, when he talked about the short story, he said it's a short story is is like a photograph, lit as if by an unearthly glow in which past, present, and future seem contemporaneous. Uh, so the story, in my mind, brings us to a moment, and in the moment, the future is is projected forward. It may be a continuation of the past, or it may be a turn in some direction or other. That that may sound very limiting or formal, but I, it doesn't feel that way to me. It feels like that's that's sort of finding the way to a resolution or a sense of completion, all of which is dependent upon beginning in a sense of crisis. Yes, that we're kind of dropped into, and as the as the reader, then um, I find there's a lot of tension in that um, of wondering, as I wonder in my own life when I'm in crisis, <laughs> of trusting that something is going to evolve in a in a good way, but fearing that it's not are you going to read something are you going to read something from ordinary love story from that from that story i could uh i'd be happy to do you have a particular passage in mind no i don't okay. let me see if i can pick something out here uh, well just because you mentioned it sure um, all right so there are two characters uh betty and carl uh I think probably the story leans a little in, in the direction of Betty. We probably spend a little more time with her. But Carl as the husband, he's in a he's mandated by the court to go to a detox program and he despises being there. It's because he uh, had a second DUI uh, under some unusual circumstances. But um, I'll read a piece from him while he's in the group home. Uh, can Carl remember having a functioning memory? It seems to function somewhat differently lately. He has been told that a part of his condition is denial of the condition. So what if he stops denying it? 
What if he embraces it instead? He still doesn't know what's real and what's not. Once late at night, not so long ago, he had been standing on his front lawn barefoot and Betty had locked the door. He had to come in through a window. He scraped the top of his head and fell asleep on the couch. Once he had called her a blank, <laughs> or she had said he had. Did, he, did she ever remember the name she called him? Did she ever apologize? Many times he'd wanted to have a family picnic at the coast or a hike through the redwoods up to Bullfrog Pond, but she wouldn't. His wants were always frivolous or selfish, even when they were not. Once his head was in her lap while she examined the scrape on his scalp, he was crying. Did he betray her? Did she betray him? Or is there a third alternative where they were both betrayed by some middle-class fantasy of happiness? Is all their suffering and discord the result of diminished desire, failed imagination, false consciousness? One thing is certain, she believed in him and now she doesn't. And I, I think maybe I'd leave off there. Um, that was perfect. I thought it was perfect because of being an example of the type of rumination that we as individuals, no matter our circumstances, our inner thoughts, go to. And I think in the distance of reader to the story is maybe one of, of safety, because I'm not experiencing it, but they are. I don't know. I think it's part of what I find to be the brilliance of your storytelling, Dan. Thank you. I'm curious how you mean that you can experience through them at a, at a safe distance? Is that... Well, yeah, you know, I think that life is not perfect for anybody, even the most successful life. We have discord in our relationships, even if they're good relationships. We have secrets. And to see that these characters embody some of that, I think is like, I am not alone in that, but Right now, I don't have to experience it because they are. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's kind of a displacement in a way. Or that's my reaction to these stories. I, I'm not going to predict how others react to them. It's very nice to hear that. I, I, I feel like maybe what draws me to short stories too is sometimes a sense of shared loneliness, darkness, despair, uh, and then the sharing of it. The loneliness is somewhat abated to, to a degree. Again, Frank O'Connor talked about that when he talked about the short story at a series of lectures, and it was called The Lonely Voice. And in his perception, I, I won't try to paraphrase, I don't think I could, but that which is common to all of us is this experience of loneliness. It seems kind of ironic. Uh, we all know this. And so um, I feel that that comes through in, in stories that move me. I, I, I feel touched by that, by the character that, that this is something that people don't talk about, but there it is. And, and this writer must know it. And I know it well in my, in my own mind. Um, so it's moving that way. The loneliness or the alienation or the isolation of a particular circumstance. In your stories, though, often there is this larger community of love that touches them or surrounds them in, in some way. And to me, that's always the um, rays of hope that come out in, in the lives of your characters, and hopefully in each one of our lives as well, if we are open to that. 
I loved the story, Where's Willoughby? Though it was not an easy story to read. And for people locally here in the area, you know, when we've had so many uh, wildfires that have displaced people and scared people. I don't know that this story is about that, but it, it's certainly set there. And um, But there's this just cascade of loss that just, there's no way to displace it. Yet there is grace that is in that story. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, Where's Willoughby? Sure, yeah. That's one of the newer stories, and it's it's particularly gratifying that you like that one. I was asked by fellow writer and publisher Bart Schneider, who, who has Kelly's Cove Press, uh, would I write something about the fires? He was doing a series of pieces around the fires. And I, I started something. It, it, there wasn't a lot of life to it. I was sort of just trying to pick up the kind of chatter I was hearing around town in, in Guerneville and in Santa Rosa. But I had started something else, and this, the, the kernel of that story enabled this to come together. It was an idea about a couple who had had, had a, a shared friend, a poet, who uh, was getting frail and older. And uh, the couple had separated from each other, but they still shared this friendship. And that, that to me was an interesting thing to try to play with. So that sort of evolved on the backdrop or in, in relation to the fires. There was a fair bit of play for me in that story. The idea of uh, the deus ex machina. Could the fires, I'd never tried to write anything about natural disasters or fires before. Um, could you make a story that is satisfying in terms of character and, and movement and growth and meaningful choice with fires in it? Or would it be about fires? And so one of the characters tells a story in which there's a love triangle and then they all get swept away by a tidal wave and uh, end of story. And that, in my own perverse way, I found that very amusing. Um, so how is this story going to skirt that? How is it going to find its its kernel and its center, even with the fires so present, so important in the in the unfolding narrative? And it had to be a, a kind of a riddle. It had to be something that the character Willoughby presented to uh, to the protagonist of the story. I, I didn't know where that was going <laughs> at all. Um, I was kind of happy to light on um, some of those closing scenes where things started to come together, the, the relationship between the husband and the wife and the woman coming to the law, coming to terms with her profound loss of her daughter. Yes, the story made its own demands. Yeah, it uh, did. Yeah, yeah. I think that it's writing about the experience of, of wildfire, especially as we experience it now. It's sad that it has become a common experience, not something unique or esoteric. And so I think readers will come to that with their own sort of experience. But I too found the story much more about the couple creating a, a solid, calm moment amidst all of the kind of cascading loss they were experiencing. We live with so much, <laughs> so much real anxiety between the floods and the fires and the pandemic and uh, the loss of the ongoing fear of the loss of our democracy, I think, was, was profound over the last year or two years. And um, yes. we, we were going through our lives with this happening all around us all the time. It's, it's quite incredible. 
And perhaps um, walking around, uh, maybe we need a different name um, than PTSD for for uh, <sighs> what many of us do experience. Um, you know, you have PTSD from a, um, a political regime and um, from, as you say, all these other events. And in one of your stories, um, Proximity, the narrator observes one big war, so many fronts. And it, it seems like part of your, it's probably just who you are, Dan, but it seems like part of your personal obligation or mission as an author has been to paint these realistic portraits of what we as humans experience and fumble through and really how important community is. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that that story, uh, it, sort of a narrow response first at least, but that story was based on uh, some real events. Uh, my brother and uh, his community are very involved in, he's an immigration lawyer, and very involved in protest around uh, immigrant rights. And particularly in, in, during the Trump years, there was terrible sadness and outrage about children in cages, and the ramifications, the, you know, the repercussions that would be from, come from that for years to come. Um, and so we took some action and the action involved protesting a bank. The bank had contracts with Sonoma County supervisors and those contracts were tied up with some of the for-profit for prisons. So that was the nature of, of our uh, protest was to try to persuade the supervisors to change their relationship with this particular bank that was invested in Geo Group and so on, because we saw that those activities as kind of criminal and, and, and horrible. So th that story kind of landed me in that, or that experience landed me into that world and the, the protest, the march on the street. And I, I was reminded of things I'm often reminded of those marches. The people come out with, with their issues, right? And you made, it was a May Day march, but there's workers' rights, there's immigrant rights, there's, uh, marching around race issues and gender issues around always, almost always a sign about uh, respect for Palestine. Um, all of this comes into play. And, and it's hard not to be reminded that we are seeing struggles for power, respect, autonomy on so many fronts. So there is that, that sense of battle all the time. I also listen to KPFA quite often. So <laughs> I'm reminded of these things near every day. Well, we're going to have to let the listeners discover more of what is in separation anxiety, including that title story, which it's called Separation Anxiety, A Light Romantic Tragedy. And is there anything you want to leave us with, Dan? A big thank you. I really have enjoyed our conversation, Suzanne, very much. Daniel Koshner, Separation Anxiety, thank you so much. Thank you. My conversation with Daniel Koshner with his book, Separation Anxiety, published by Unsolicited Press, with some fabulous cover art by Dan's sister, Valerie Koshner. I am Suzanne Lang, bringing you a novel idea here on KRCB Sonoma County's NPR station. We'll take a short break before talking with Beth Kirshner on her novel, Copper Divide. Stay with us. Take a trip with me in 1913 
Dear Cal, you met Michigan in the copper country I'll take you to a place called Italian Hall And the miners are having their big Christmas ball I'll take you in a door and up a high stairs Singing and dancing is heard everywhere I'll let you shake hands with the people you see And watch the kids dance around the big Christmas tree There's talking and laughing and songs in the air And the spirit of Christmas is there everywhere Before you know it, you're friends with us all And you're dancing around and around in the hall That was a West Marin neighbor of ours, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, singing Woody Guthrie's 1913 Massacre. The Upper Peninsula of Michigan and the Union struggles that included the Italian Hall Massacre is the setting of Beth Kirshner's novel, Copper Divide. Beth is the author of poetry, short stories, and travel writing, and this is her first novel. The book is the story of relationships, coming of age at a time when it wasn't always clear to people what the right thing to do was. Much of the divisions that marked that time are similar to what we experience today. Tribalism, exclusion, judgment, hypocrisy, and violence. Copper Divide is a story of people and our ability to think and reason and change. Let's listen to our conversation. Beth Kirshner, uh, your book is Copper Divide. Welcome to talk to us today about it. Thanks for inviting me. The book is set in the Keweenaw, the uppermost part of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Many of our listeners will know the Woody Guthrie song of the 1913 massacre and Calumet, Michigan in the Copper Country. And I'm wondering if this song inspired you to set your story there, or is his song another lingering cultural artifact of what happened there? So tell us about what inspired the setting of your book during these labor wars up in the mining country. Yeah, yeah. the song was actually something that wasn't the original catalyst, but definitely something that came in after. Uh, I went I went to uh, college up in the Keweenaw in a college called Michigan Tech, which is a a very snowy landscape, uh, probably, I think, the, the most snowfall in the country in any particular university. And I fell in love with the place. It's, it's unique. It's beautiful. It's challenging. And I took a class on local history while I was there. And that, I think, really was the original catalyst for the story. Uh, and I continue to think about those events, continue to think about that moment in time. And I wanted to learn more about it and also just bring in all the interesting characters that I knew in the UP and felt were part of that place and time even 100 years ago. In this story, I was wondering if what also inspired you or was something you were reflecting upon was our current divisions within our culture and society 
which I tell you were never far from my mind when reading the book. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, in your story, there are divisions along ethnic lines, different from today, but much like today. And so tell me what you were thinking about when you were writing the book. That definitely weighed very heavily on my mind. You know, the more things change, the more they remain the same, just to use a a cliche. But uh, reading about the attitudes towards immigrants in the story really resonated with, uh, you know, a different group of immigrants that we have today, but it's the same the same sort of attitudes of they don't fit in, they have a different language, they wear different clothes. And, and then there's also today, uh, there's a resurgence of labor movements. You know, there's a lot of uh, strikes, there's a lot of legal battles going on right now, revisiting many of the same issues that were being contested back at this time. So Uh, It was very, very much in uh, my mind when I was writing it. And now when I'm looking at the news, it feels like it's very, uh, it's become more current rather than rather than less. Well, let's set the story up a little bit, because we we could come back to that point, because I too was just struck by the similarities, you know, over 100 years later, that some of the same Um, sticking points we seem to be experiencing. But the story is not necessarily about the death and, and what is known as the 1913 massacre, but it is a part of the story. And I see this really as a story of these young people who are negotiating their way through difficult times and uh, political times and their own friendships and their own ability to, to relate with people and relate with each other. So let's start there. Why don't you set up the story a little bit? Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for that for recognizing that because I didn't want this to be a history lesson. I really wanted to take some interesting characters and put them in an interesting time uh, full of conflict and and see, see where they go with that. So uh, in, in 1913, Calumet, Michigan was the world's supplier of copper in, in the world. And this particular remote part of Michigan was really the state's economic powerhouse. Uh, it was Uh, at one point considered to be the capital of Michigan because there was so much activity there. But there was a lot of contention in in the labor mines and uh, there was a large strike where it shut down all of these copper mines and the National Guard was brought in. And within all of this turmoil, I wanted to create three characters to show different perspectives of what was happening and and see how they evolved, you know, see what how they the the different ways they saw this conflict, the different way they they reacted to the conflict. So I created a a Jewish shopkeeper's daughter and a wife of a striking miner. And the third perspective and point of view was from a, a scab miner brought in to cross the picket lines and work in the mines during the strike. 
And these three characters are young people who are in the midst of of this environment and also are um, maybe even learning to be who they are or, or not learning that, as the case may be, which I found kind of interesting. Hannah, the daughter of the Jewish merchants, is um, a little bit more affluent, uh, has a different lifestyle comparatively to the miners' families and to her friend Nelma, who has two children and has a lot of responsibilities on her, but is somebody who seems to know her own mind and know her own values. And then, as you say, there's a scab miner, Russell, who comes in. I just saw him as somebody who really doesn't know who he is, and he watches others, and he tries different things. He's trying on personas, maybe even, and goes with the actions of others often, but doesn't seem to have his own true moral compass. And so these three perspectives really did create a lot of tension in the book. I'm glad you saw that tension. Yeah, it was fun for me to learn and research what people's lives were like and they're, they were very disparate. You know, the, the, in the city, the, 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 uh, Hannah lived a life where her family owned a department store. They had running water. They had electricity. You know, they were sophisticated and the, or at least had the ability to live in a sophisticated city where, where Nelma lived uh, in a in a house that was built and owned by the mines and they did not have running water and uh, she had a little more difficulty in her day-to-day to get things done and and uh, it was really amusing to me to find out just how new and novel electricity was in that time because there was a, a pavilion that was called Electric Park. And it was it was basically a pavilion where people would go and listen to music and dance and get together and socialize. But the fact that it was called Electric Park, you can hear the novelty of, wow, you know, we have an electric park with electricity and electric lights. And, and that was something very special. And then the miners themselves, when they went down in the mines, uh, Russell had, they didn't have electricity widely available. He had to light a, a little fire in his helmet in order to see where he was going. He didn't have any sort of lithium battery light bulb on his on his helmet. And yeah, I, I would agree that Russell is the most lost. He's the one that changed the most over the course of the story, trying to figure out who he was and how to respond to how others saw him. And, and uh, I, I would say Hannah was the second one that maybe changed and, and learned and, and was challenged to see the hardships of her friend and, and try to come to terms with what her opinion was of, of the changes in society. And she uh, was surrounded by a family who also had their opinions and, and their economic considerations. They were merchants. And Nelma, who is Finnish, is um, very entrenched in support of, of the miners and the union, yet her mother runs a boarding house that is renting to these scab miners. So I think it just shows that 
families were divided, or sometimes they maybe were hiding their own opinions about things. Um, in the story, the strike has been going on for, for months, really, when the locals form what is called the Citizens' Alliance. And Hannah says that she doesn't like it, but at least it makes it clear where people's sympathies lie. And I, I know I won't be shopping at that store anymore if somebody isn't wearing a Citizens' Alliance button or having a sign in their window, which we could talk about the Citizens' Alliance, um, but it also did make me think of how that sort of uh, representation of, say, wearing a button or in this day and age wearing a, a hat identifies uh, who you are and who you are not. So um, talk a little bit about the Citizens Alliance and the role they played. Yeah, yeah, it was an interesting uh, turn of events where the the miners really held the upper hand on pushing the narrative for the first half of the strike. And the, uh, at a certain point, the uh, merchants and uh, local citizens formed what was known as a citizens alliance to counter those attempts. Uh, not everybody knew that the citizens alliance was largely funded by the by the mining company. So in a sense, it was very similar to lobbying events you, uh, you might see today where you see a lot of advertisements and for various political causes and you're not really sure you know, where that funding is coming from and, and who is trying to change the narrative by saying, you know, we own the people's voice. And, and I think we see this sort of influence happen, you know, across the political spectrum today. But interesting also that people like Hannah uh, became involved in this Citizens Alliance because, uh, you know, she, she felt that her society was being torn apart. You know, there was a lot of turmoil, things were being blown up, there were murders, it was, it was pretty dire. And yet even she didn't realize that she was in a way also a pawn in the larger movement with this Citizens Alliance being funded by the mining companies. So there's a lot of moving parts. And I, I found it really interesting just to see, you know, none of us really know all the moving parts at any one particular time, and, and neither did my characters. And so it was an interesting thought experience, experiment to explore and just and see where they went. Yeah, H Hannah seemed to hope for things to be easier. Like she didn't want difficulty with her friendship. And and I will say, as an aside, all these characters also have there. There are emotional um, love interests and, and yearnings that they have on romantic levels or with their spouse. And so the characters aren't just one-dimensional or, or focused solely on this uh, turmoil that was going on there. But Hannah, to me, was interesting in that she was at times uh, a little trite about things in her comprehension about what was going on. And she just had a long way to grow, I think, and learned lessons the hard way. And in contrast 
to Nelma, her friend, uh, who lived so differently and had such a different sense of responsibility. Yet Hannah, you know, she wanted to go to school. She wanted to go to college. And this was an inconvenience because she couldn't go to college. So I I don't know. Talk a a little bit about the contrast of these two characters, yet they still had this bond of friendship. Yeah, I I think that friendships, and, and certainly in my own life, I've seen friendships over decades with people from very different backgrounds and means when you form a certain chemistry. And I think it's helpful having these friendships to to see the world through your other people's eyes. But yeah, when Hannah, at the very beginning of the novel, Hannah, it opens when there is um, a a horrific murder that happened or uh, a gunfight where um, some of the striking miners were shot dead for trespassing um, across uh, the mining company land. And I really wanted to show how uh, a little immature Hannah was at this moment in time, how she she didn't quite see the gravity of it. She thought, it was an inconvenience and, and it didn't seem real to her. You know, she just thought, well, you know, it's like something I read in a book is how she put it. And it didn't resonate with her so much versus her friend Nelma. Uh, she, you know, she, this was very real to her. These were people she knew and she was marching in the strike parades. She was uh, part of the, the funeral arrangements for the for the miners who who were shot. So uh, yeah, I, I wanted to bring in that contrast where these were two people who grew up together and they saw the world in very different ways, at least at the beginning of the of the story. And near the end of the story, Hannah wonders, was there anyone who didn't have a hidden agenda or an allegiance that would trump the one between friends? And and sometimes I, I see that we suffer from that today as well, and that we have traveled so far, but maybe just in a circular motion, I don't know. Um, and I, I'm wondering how you see if there are lingering effects from 1913 today, especially up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan? You know, even today, there are, I think people still take sides on the story, which I I find really interesting. I, I wanted to tread a little carefully when I when I chose to write this book, because I while I spent a lot of time up there. I, I did not grow up in that area. And I recognized that I that I am an outsider. And I felt as an outsider, I could, I could both be a dispassionate observer and an empathetic listener to all sides of the story. So as far as the after effects of that, uh, that time, um, there's, there's still people who remember and take sides. On the other hand, there are people who really want to move on. They want to move past that moment in time. They want to reinvent the area and they'd like to see it not as a, a place full of ghosts, but a place with a, with a great future. And it, and it is a beautiful place. It's, it's reinventing itself as a, as a outdoor adventure place where people can ski in the winter and hike and bike in the summer 
So, uh, so yeah, there's, there's a history there that's an undertone, but there's also a, a strong sense of people wanting to move on and leave that in the past. And do they still do mining up there? Not the copper mines, no. The, the, the interesting thing is there is still probably millions of dollars of, of copper in the ground, but it is so deep and, it, and the, the vein runs underneath Lake Superior. So they've, they've shut down the mines because it's just not economically feasible to bring it back up anymore. Did you have the experience, I'm imagining as, as in other places with rich mining histories that they have mine tours um, for the public to, to go to because your, your descriptions of uh, Russell's initial descent into the mines and really how long it took to even get down to the level they were working on. And I'm wondering if you went on a mine tour or went down into the mines and and how did you get that portrayal of life in the mines? Yeah, yeah. No, I did. I read books, of course, and I looked at pictures, of course. But uh, but yeah, I've, I've taken several mining tours and I'm I'm really happy that I I managed to take a mine tour some 20 years ago because nowadays the mines have all flooded they what in order to mine they have to keep the water out and so they were constantly running generators to dewater the mines and the mines were nearly a mile deep nowadays if you go you can take these mining tours and they're fabulous but when I went there originally, I remember I picked up a stone and I dropped it down a mine shaft and I never heard it hit bottom. And that, and that still resonates with me. It was just a long, dark hole in the ground. <laughs> the book is Copper Divide, and I'm talking with Beth Kirshner. Um, Beth, it seems like you've been writing for a while, but this is your first novel. So I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about your um, writing life and what you have ahead of you. Yeah, I I have always been writing. I've not made a strong effort to get published until now, to be honest. I've written a lot of travel journals and short stories, some which have been published in local competitions. But uh but this is what was my passion, and it, I really enjoyed the process of, of writing the novel. And I'm looking forward to now uh, creating some new characters in a different time and a different place, and uh, probably in the Southwest, but still kind of getting to know them. Well, very good. Very good, Beth. I wonder if there's anything you want to leave our listeners with. Um, I'd say that I hope if they read the story that they they enjoy escaping to another place in time to be able to immerse themselves in the story because that's what I find most satisfying when I read a book there's a lot of interesting history to be learned but most of all I hope readers can can walk away with a, a kind of a fresh understanding that one single person's perspective doesn't necessarily describe everything that's going on. Thank you, Beth. I, I will say that it, the some of the scenes uh, in winter, I felt like I uh, <laughs> really had to pull up my, you know, my afghan over my legs because uh, you depicted it as being kind of 
kind of a cold, snowy place. <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad that came across because it is it is a, a very cold and snowy place, but it's also quite beautiful. And uh, thank you so much for this opportunity and the conversation. Absolutely. I enjoyed it too. Thanks so much, Beth. My conversation with Beth Kirshner and her book is Copper Divide by Touchpoint Press. Earlier, we heard from Daniel Koshner with his latest book, Separation Anxiety. I thank Dan and Beth for joining us, and I thank you for listening. I have production assistance from James Morey and Mark Prell. We have support from Oliver's Market, celebrating over 30 years serving customers with four locations in Sonoma County. Employee-owned and locally focused. Learn more at oliversmarket.com. We are a production of Lit Radio and Northern California Public Media. You can listen to past shows and subscribe to our podcast at krcb.org. Follow the podcast links. Download the KRCB app for your Apple or Android device and listen that way. I am Suzanne Lang, and this is a novel idea. <laughs>